this is a conversation about the 15th episode called My Joyce Sissy, and it takes place in what is known as Night Town, but in reality it was the brothel quarter of Dublin, which was bounded, say, by what is now Talbot Street, Corporation Street, and Sean McDermott Street, coming out at the end of Buckingham Street in Amiens Street. The Mabbott Street entrance of Night Town before which stretches an uncobbled tram siding set with skeleton tracks, red and green will-o'-the-wisps and danger signals. Rows of flimsy houses with gaping doors. In spite of it being notorious, many people in Dublin, middle-class people, professed not to know about its existence, so much so that when... What's for the British Army anyway? That's it, yes, that's right. (laughs) My mother told me that, and she believed it. That's one of the things that Joyce undercut, this kind of uh, pretense. Yes, and uh, I think that would have caused a certain amount of resentment here. The fact that Irish people, in addition to the British Army, used the facilities that were down there. And Joyce did too. Oh, he did, from a very early age. Mm -hmm. So Joyce was familiar with the area as was Gogarty, so it appears that a lot of Dubliners were familiar with it. It was eventually closed down in the early 1920s by the Legion of Mary, who got the police to raid it. And of course, after that, all the names of the streets were changed, and then it was a very old area, and the houses were pulled down, so that today there's virtually nothing of it left. We've walked through Mabbott Lane, and that would be about the only one the Joyce would recognise today. The Mabbott Street entrance of Night Town. This chapter, I should say, there is a reality that goes through it. What actually happens is detailed in it as well. But the majority of the chapter is made up of hallucinations, either of Stephen or of Bloom. So I am going to ignore the hallucinations and just trying to tell people what actually happens in the chapter And then we'll talk later maybe about the various solutions, at least some of them, in the time available for us. We couldn't possibly cover the whole of them. As I say, it's half eleven. Stephen and Lynch and, I presume, Broom have come across by train from Western Row to Amiens Street, which is only two stops. They would have come out of the station, not by the main entrance, but by a side entrance, which is opposite Buckingham Street. Mm-hmm. And they would have come up Amien Street and up Talbot Street from where we go. Anyway, we picked them up going into Night Town themselves. And Stephen is chanting the introit of a mass, and he's accompanied by... In a way, him. continuing what McMullingan did in the morning. Later, Bloom comes rushing up Talbot Street after them. Now, why he was delayed, it's not clear. But anyway, I think it's irrelevant to speculate. He is late and he has chocolate and he goes in and buys a sheep's trotter and a crew bean, which is a pig's foot anyway, a pig's trotter as well, which is usually cooked. When he crosses the road, a sand steward nearly runs over him. And when he goes into the area, an old woman catches him by the sleeve and tries to detain him. He 
shakes her off and goes off in search of Stephen. Wild goose chase this. Disorderly houses. Lord knows where they're gone. Drunks cover distance double quick. And he eventually reaches Bella Corn's house and meets Zoe Higgins outside. Are you looking for someone? He's inside with his friend. Is this uh, Mrs. Max? No. 81, Mrs. Goins. You might go farther and fare worse. Mother slipper slapper. She explores him and finds that he has a potato in his pocket and she takes it. You've a hard shanker. Not likely. I feel it. Her hand slides into his left trouser pocket and brings out a hard, black, shriveled potato. She regards it and Bloom with dumb, moist lips. A talisman, heirloom. <laughs> for Zoe, for keeps, for being so nice, eh? They go into the house and find that Stephen and Lynch are in there with two other whores, Kitty and Florrie. Stephen sits at the piano, and for some reason, I suppose it's his dress, Florrie asks him if he's a student in the seminary in Maynooth, and Zoe goes on to tell how a priest had come to the brothel at some time in the recent past. There was a priest down here two nights ago to do his bit of business, with his coat buttoned up. <laughs> you needn't try to hide, I says to him. I know you've a Roman collar. Bloom hears someone's come down the stairs and his old preoccupations surface again. He wonders if it's boiling. And then, of course, he's quite relieved when he realises that it's not. Bella Cohn then comes into the room and rather overall... The, the Yes, she is the madam of the brothel and rather overawes Bloom. The door opens. Bella Cohen, a massive whore mistress, enters. She is dressed in a three-quarter ivory gown, fringed round the hem with tassel selvage, and cools herself, flirting a black horn fan like Minnie Hauk in Carmen. On her left hand are wedding and keeper rings. Her eyes are deeply carboned. She has a sprouting moustache. Her olive face is heavy, slightly sweated and full-nosed, with orange-tainted nostrils. She has large, pendant, beryl eardrops. Bella. My word. I'm all of a muck sweat. Kitty, in a trivial incident, just asked Florrie for a cushion, and the back button of Bloom's trousers snaps. The button. He manages to get his potato back from Zoe, and Which uh, we now learn is something against rheumatism. Yes. At long last we know why he has a potato. <laughs> and that his mother gave it to him. But I have never met anyone that carried a potato <laughs> as a talisman against rheumatism, but obviously it was. However, he gets his potato back and he finds that he's no longer as afraid of Bill Cohn as he was. She, of course, like every madam in a brothel, demands payment, ten shillings each, and Stephen gives her money. Bella looks at the money, then at Zoe, Florrie and Kitty. Do you want three girls? It's ten shillings here. Stephen, delightedly. A hundred thousand apologies. He fumbles again and takes out and hands her two crowns. Permit, brevi manu, my sight is somewhat troubled. Bloom then comes forward and puts ten shillings on the table and takes the pound note back. He offers the pound to Stephen and offers to mine the money that Stephen has. I don't know whether Bloom actually pays for himself or not. Zoe then sits down and looks at the palms of both Stephen and Bloom, and whatever she sees in 
Bloom's hand makes her laugh. Zoe, peering at Bloom's palm. Gridiron. Travels beyond the sea and marry money. Wrong. Zoe, quickly. Oh, I see. Short little finger. Enpecked husband. That wrong. Stephen entertains them in broken English about Paris, and then he tells of the dream he had the night before. Mark me. I dreamt of a watermelon. Zoe. Go abroad and love a foreign lady. Lynch. Across the world for a wife. Florrie. Dreams go by contraries. Stephen, extending his arms. It was here, Street of Harlots. In Serpentine Avenue, Beelzebub showed me her, a fubsy widow. Where's the red carpet spread? Bloom, approaching Stephen. Look. No, I flew, my foes beneath me. And ever shall be world without end. He cries. Potter, free! I say, look. Break my spirit, will he? Oh, murder, lord! He cries, his vulture talons sharpened. Hola! Hilly ho! We then hear that two British soldiers, Private Carr and Private Compton, with its alleged Sissy Caffrey, it couldn't be Sissy Caffrey that we saw on the beach earlier. That is quite impossible. But in the hallucinatory sort of atmosphere that we get in this chapter, it is someone like Sissy Caffrey. Anyway, she's a girl with these two soldiers and they pass by the window of the brothel singing, My Girl's a Yorkshire Girl. That's me! She claps her hands. Zoe is from Yorkshire and she switches on the pianola and Stephen starts dancing. The pianola with changing lights plays in waltz time the prelude to My Girl's a Yorkshire Girl. Stephen throws his ash plant on the table and seizes Zoe around the waist. Florrie and Bella push the table towards the fireplace. Stephen, arming Zoe with exaggerated grace, begins to waltz her around the room. Her sleeve, falling from gracing arms, reveals a white flesh flower of vaccination. Bloom stands aside. Couples form and Stephen is left dancing on his own. And suddenly he sees, he does actually see an apparition of his mother. I mention this because all the other hallucinations seem to take place in the head of the person involved. They just imagine they see it. But Stephen has a a physical reaction to that and all the people in the room realise that something has happened to him, that he is seeing something. Oh! Stephen's mother, emaciated, rises stark through the floor in leper grey, with a wreath of faded orange blossoms and a torn bridal veil, her face worn and noseless, green with grave mould. Her hair is scant and lank. She fixes her blue-circled, hollow eye sockets on Stephen and opens her toothless mouth, uttering a silent word. He goes all pale, and he stops dancing, lifts his ash plant high with both hands and smashes the chandelier. Time's livid final flame leaps, and in the following darkness, ruin of all space, shattered glass and toppling masonry, the gas jet. Stop! Lynch rushes forward and seizes Stephen's hand. Here, hold on! Don't run a mock! Bella. Honey! 
Stephen, abandoning his ash plant, his head and arms thrown back stark, beats the ground and flees from the room. He runs out of the house, and of course everyone runs out after him for different reasons. After him! The two whores rush to the hall door. Bella grabs Bloom before he can get her and demands ten shillings for the damage, and Bloom says... Only the chimney's broken. Here is all he... Bella shrinks back and screams. Jesus, don't! Bloom warding off a blow. To show you how he hit the paper. There's not a sixpence worth of damage done. And throws a shilling on the table and goes after Stephen. Corny Keller, in fact, is not an hallucination, comes on a car with two men who are described as lechers. Anyway, we don't know who they are. Seemingly, the... Soldiers have gone off to relieve themselves, and Stephen has said something to the girl who is alleged to be Sissy Caffrey. A row starts when the alleged Sissy Caffrey says, He insulted me, but I forgive him. Shouting in his ear. I forgive him for insulting me. And the soldiers come back, and of course, Stephen is quite drunk and doesn't know what's going on. He says he's trying to kill the priest and king, and of course... The soldiers take it up that he's insulting Edward VII and get very belligerent. I'll wring the neck if any bugger says a word against my fucking king. Bloom, terrified. He said nothing, not a word, a pure misunderstanding. At this stage, Lynch makes his getaway and leaves Stephen in the lurch. Private Carr makes a lunge at Stephen, hits him and knocks him down. Two policemen come on the scene and Bloom, in his usual plathery way, tries to straighten out things, but is not getting very far. And then Corny Kelleher comes along and he, being a friend of the police, is able to straighten things out and the police go away and leave Bloom looking off at the prone Stephen on the ground. And the last thing we have is the other thing that I think, like Stephen seeing his mother, is real, say in inverted commas, Bloom sees the ghost of his dead son, Rudy. And that's the end of the chapter. Against the dark wall, a figure appears slowly. A fairy boy of eleven, a changeling, kidnapped, dressed in an Eton suit, with glass shoes and a little bronze helmet, holding a book in his hand. He reads from right to left, inaudibly, smiling, kissing the page. Bloom, wonderstruck, calls inaudibly. Rudy! Rudy gazes unseeing into Bloom's eyes and goes on reading, kissing, smiling. This is by far the longest, disproportionately longest chapter, and there's no way in which one could adequately summarise it. And uh, it also shows that disparity between what happens, the, the time units in reality, and the verbiage that expanded it is farther and farther apart. So the chapter gets longer still for the same time. So it's a chapter that Joyce worked over a long time. He often counted how often he had written it and expanded it. It actually grew under his hands, it went in some way out of hands. 
and then had to be in a way controlled again and that's uh, I think a very typical thing that happened and also this chapter in a way gave it a whole new dimension so that he also went back and reworked earlier chapters because of that so it's a very long one and we went to some pains to figure out where it had been there's no longer there so we want to anchor it in reality which it is but it very soon leaves the reality as you said and Joyce tipped us off on that its technique is hallucination things that go on in the mind Bloom lifts the turtle head towards her lap we have met before on another star the nymph sadly rubber goods never rip brand are supplied to the aristocracy corsets for men I cure fits or money refunded unsolicited testimonials for Professor Waldman's wonderful chest exuber my bust developed four inches in three weeks reports Mrs. Gus Rublin with photo you mean photo bits I do and we very soon realized that as particularly Bloom or through the streets there's a sinister figure speaking something Spanish well why not and then suddenly we have Molly has poor little hubby cold feet waiting so long? We have his father. Are you not my son, Leopold? The grandson of Leopold. And obviously we realise these are called up in his mind. They're not real people. So uh, in some way this is a kind of psychological thing that what is in the mind is treated equally as though it were present, as though it were basically staged. In fact, we all have to say the chapter is in the form of a stage. We have characters, we have stage directions, and we have what they say. Are you not my dear son, Leopold, who left the house of his father and left the god of his fathers, Abraham and Jacob? Bloom, with precaution. I suppose so, father. Mosenthal, all that's left of him. We soon realize that these are projections, inner projections, of what goes on in the minds. This is, in a way, an extension of the interior monologue, only it's dramatized. Bloom, in youth's smart blue Oxford suit, with white vest slips, narrow-shouldered, in brown alpine hat, wearing gents, sterling silver Waterbury keyless watch and double-curb Albert with seal attached, one side of him coated with stiffening mud. Harriers, father, only that once. Once! Mud, head to foot, cut your hand open, lock jaw. They make you kaput, Leopold Leibman. You watch them chaps. Bloom, weakly. They challenged me to a sprint. It was muddy, I slipped. Rudolph, with contempt. Goyam Natchez. Nice spectacles for your poor mother. Mama! Ellen Bloom. Things that are repressed come to the surface, and that is, of course, wishes... There's a lot of uh, ambition. Uh, both Stephen and Bloom rise to high positions and are taken down very rapidly. And also guilt and fear. All of this uh, comes up. This puts the chapter very close to the then fashionable or controversial new psychoanalytical school, where Freud talked about the aspects of us that have been repressed, all the perversions, all the aggression and all of that in this camp. So this is a field day for psychoanalytical approach, and if you want to, to do it, this is the chapter to go, and it has actually been done. And we also see, in exaggeration, things that have been faintly traced earlier on, here now, come into their own. We remember then when Bloom said very early when he talked to the cat, he thought, 
strange mice never squeal when cat catches them seem to like it now you might say this is a bit of masochism but that would be overreading but here now bloom's masochism which is also shown in his suffering molly's deviant behavior here it's magnified he's subjected to pain and in some way seems to relish it and so all these unconscious elements come to the surface and bloom even and we know bloom has been considered he was a manly man in Nausicaa's, in Gertie McDowell's house, but he was a kind of a mixed middling, like a woman. He even, it seems, when Molly had her period, he had a headache too and uh, lay in bed. And here now he even changes sex. Not man. He sniffs. Woman. Bello stands up. No more blow hot and cold. What you longed for has come to pass. Henceforth you are unmanned, and mine in earnest, a thing under the yoke. Now for your punishment, frock. You will shed your male garments, you understand, Ruby Cohen, and don the shut silk luxuriously rustling over head and shoulders, and quickly do! Bloom shrinks. Silk, mistress said. Oh, crinkly, scrapey, must I tip-touch it with my nails. Bellow points to his whores. As they are now, so will you be. Wigged, singed, perfume sprayed, rice powdered with smooth shaven armpits. Bella, the dominant mistress, becomes Bellow and he is subjugated and uh, treated in a masochistic way. So all of this here comes to the surface. Kitty. Don't be too hard on her, Mr. Bella. Sure you won't, ma'am, sir. Bello, coaxingly. Come, ducky dear. I want a word with you, darling, just to administer correction. Just a little heart-to-heart talk, sweetie. Bloom puts out her timid head. There's a good girlie now. Bello grabs her hair violently and drags her forward. I only want to correct you for your own good on a soft, safe spot. How's that tender behind? Oh, ever so gently, pet. Begin to get ready. Bloom, fainting. Don't tear my... Bellow, savagely. The nose ring, the pliers, the bastinado, the hanging hook. The knout I'll make you kiss while the flutes play like the Nubian slave of old. You're in for it this time. I'll make you remember me for the balance of your natural life. His forehead veins swollen, his face congested. I shall sit on your ottoman saddleback every morning after my thumping good breakfast of Madison's fat ham rashers and a bottle of Guinness's porter. He belches. And suck my thumping good stock exchange cigar while I read the licensed Vittler's Gazette. Very possibly I shall have you slaughtered and skewered in my stables and enjoy a slice of you with crisp crackling from the baking tin, basted and baked like sucking pig, with rice and lemon or currant sauce. It will hurt you. He twists her arm. Bloom squeaks, turning turtle. Don't be cruel, nurse. Don't. Bello, twisting. Another. Bloom screams. Oh, it's hell itself. Every nerve in my body aches like mad. At one point, when Zoe, she wants custom outside of the brothel, they flirt a little bit, and uh, of course, 
the prostitute isn't interested in small talk. She says, go on, make a stump speech out of me. Mm. And this is taken up, and Bloom, in fact, makes a political speech as well. And he rises to become king and emperor and lawgiver and even in a Hebrew Protestant, all of this. And then he is taken down, and twice he is taken to prison, he is subjected to a trial, and once he's even executed. Brother Buzz invests Bloom in a yellow habit with embroidery of painted flames and high-pointed hat. He places a bag of gunpowder around his neck and hands him over to the civil power, saying, Forgive him his trespasses. Lieutenant Myers of the Dublin Fire Brigade, by general request, sets fire to Bloom. Lamentations. The citizen. Thank heaven. Bloom, in a seamless garment marked IHS, stands upright amid phoenix flames. Weep not for me, O daughters of Erin. This is a chapter where lots of things take place, but they have absolutely no effect. Even the end of the world turns up (laughs) and is forgotten right away. A rocket rushes up the sky and bursts. A white star falls from it, proclaiming the consummation of all things and second coming of Elijah. Stephen has a series of hallucinations, not as many as Bloom, and he rises to a neoclassical as a cardinal. His eminence, Simon Stephen Cardinal Dedalus, primate of all Ireland, appears in the doorway, dressed in red soutane, sandals, seven dwarf simian acolytes, also in red, cardinal sins, uphold his train, peeping under it. Of course, that's all in his... I mean, nothing of what happens, only the most trivial things are real money transaction and things like that but all the great things just to give one example bloom at one time proclaims that's one of the great thing um, the new blue muslim in the nova hibernia of the future and a palace is built by thirty-two thousand workmen from all the counties of ireland under the guidance of derwin the builder construct the new blue muslim it is a colossal edifice with crystal roof built in the shape of a huge pork kidney and uh, it's built right there, or Bloom, when he's a woman in court, is about to have a baby, actually has eight male children that grow up to rise to respectable positions. Now, nobody takes this at face value. It wouldn't be possible. Oh, I so want to be a mother. And that, I think, at least the humour of it, or the, the incongruity, grows on everyone. And since there it's quite clear that it isn't, It may be an exaggeration of Bloom's desire to have a male child, and now he has eight of them with funny names, all to do with gold and silver. Nazodoro, Goldfinger, Chrysostomus, Mandore, Silver Smile, Zilber Zelba, Vifarjan, Panargyros. Then it becomes so strikingly obvious that we can't take this at face value. And it's over soon and forgotten. And we will later on realise that hardly anything of what happened will reverberate later on. And it's often pointless, though we can't help trying, to separate reality from imagination. 
or hallucination. The bells. At one point, the bells chime midnight. But now, we don't know whether it's actual midnight or midnight in the hallucination and things like that. There are a few events where we know we are back in reality. Stephen is being knocked down, we know that. And they do enter the brothel and there is some horseplay going on, but otherwise we don't know. So at this point it's the psychological element, which of course is in tune with what was going on at the time, including the recognition that in all of us there are both male and female elements. This was something that, in a way, was talked about. Bloom murmurs lovingly. To be a shoe fitter in Mansfields was my love's young dream. The darling joys of sweet button-hooking. To lace up criss-cross to knee-length the dressy kid footwear satin-lined so incredibly small of Clyde Road ladies. Even their wax model Raymond I visited daily to admire her cobweb hose and stick of rhubarb toe, as worn in Paris. Yes, well, so we discover more and more about the inner workings of each of the characters. And we see, in Stephen particularly, what is between himself and his mother. And he eventually makes the break with his mother that he hadn't made before. Stephen, choking with fright, remorse and horror. They said I killed your mother. He offended your memory. Cancer did it, not I. Destiny. The mother, a green rill of bile trickling from the side of her mouth. You sang that song to me. Love's bitter mystery. Stephen, eagerly. Tell me the word, mother. If you know now, the word known to all men. Who saved you? The night you jumped into the train at Dorky with Paddy Who had pity for you when you were sad among the strangers? Prayer is all-powerful. Prayer for the suffering souls in the Ursuline Manual and 40 days indulgence. Repent, Stephen. The ghoul! Hyena! I pray for you in my other Again, some people think that some of these conflicts are resolved. Maybe this obsession with his mother is gone. I don't quite know. I, mm. I, don't, I see very little evidence. However, this is not the whole thing, that we get into an inner world and all its uh, drama and, and tensions and things like that. There are passages that gave trouble even to critics. At one point, when Molly appears, in her mind there is a a kind of mock Latin phrase, a kind of magic formula that Stephen earlier found in the book. Now, it's totally unlikely that Molly ever looked in the same book, and there are many similar things, transfers, and some people think it wasn't Joyce, wasn't Joyce a bit careless, did he forget, or some think there's a kind of telepathy there, but at a certain point we realise that we go beyond the individual minds and what's in them, so that Stephen can easily come up with something that was never in his mind before, so we go beyond onto a level which we can call a meta level, or as though, it's very hard to express this, I just use a kind of approximate language, as though the book itself had a memory and remembers that something occurred before, so we are on a level that is far beyond individual possibility. And the best example of it, when Bloom 
have been taken down from the eminence of being emperor and everything is again put up to trial. He is executed or will be executed. Then we have the daughters of Aaron that are an equivalent of the daughters of Jerusalem and the way of the cross. Kidney of bloom. Pray us. Flower of the bath. Pray us. Mentor of Menton. Pray us. Canvasser for the free man. Pray us. Charitable mason. Pray us. Wandering soap. Pray us. Sweets of sin. Pray us. Music without words. Pray us. Reprover of the citizen. Pray us. Friend of all frillies. Pray us. Midwife most merciful. Now this echoes, of course, the litany of the Virgin Mary in chapter 13. And you would certainly realize these are 12 elements, and these are actually echoes of the 12 chapters. Kidney of Bloom One. in the kitchen, Flower of the Bath, the second chapter, a Mentor of Menton, the Hades, and so on until to the last one, Midwife Most Merciful, the hospital scene, Potato Preservative right now. So the book, in a way, reflects itself. Bloom does not know and cannot possibly know that he is a fictitious character in 12 chapters. So what I mean is the book now reflects on itself as something artificial and constructed. So this has had a great influence on 20th century literature. This, this has become quite something. So what I want to say, we move beyond the confines of a psyche, no matter how complicated. And in fact, in this chapter, the whole, all the elements in a way, or practically all, keep coming up in different arrangements. Yes, but isn't this... You make the, the book sound like a, a Russian doll. Um, yes, but most people come to a book thinking that they're going to see characters in it and interacting, and they're all right. They have yeah, hallucinations. Yeah. But then you're yeah. saying the book has hallucinations, yeah, as yeah, it were. Yeah. And uh, how far do you go beyond yeah. that? Does the book hallucinate into another book? I mean, that's what I mean by saying that we're into the Russian doll syndrome. Yeah, well, as we can see from our reactions, for me, this is an interesting development oh, for many others. And you can also object to it. It's not playing by the traditional rules. And you said, we have enough character. In fact, we discussed a lot of things on the basis of characters. Why on earth doesn't Bloom go home and all of that? Mm. In a way, we have enough of that. Now, in this chapter, as in every other, Joyce goes very far in a certain direction. Mm. And this is, in a way, the climax of this particular aspect. Merciful, potato preservative against plague and pestilence. In many of these later chapters, we are on the brink of what will be Finnegan's Wake. Yes, we are. It's interesting, for example, that when Stephen smashes the chandelier, he pronounces one word, and that word is notung. Mm -hmm which is from a secret mm. sort. So on the one hand, it's grandiose, Wagnerian, mm. and if anything is grandiose, it's <laughs> Wagner. And then you have the ruin of all spaces and the, the, the world comes to an end. All it is is a, a little damage to a it's glass only a of a chandelier. On a, on a and what people would hear is probably not nothing, but nothing. nothing. So Tap. you get on the one hand the great grandiose drama mm. and then, by the way, something to... And as you said, one of the actions is one of Bloom's trouser buttons mm. goes snip and this almost changes his mood he suddenly takes over mm. and asserts himself again the button two sluts of the coom dance rainily by shawled yelling flatly the sluts
Bloom, coldly. You have broken the spell. The last straw. If there were only ethereal, where would you all be? Postulants and novices? Shy but willing, like an ass pissing. And you might say, on the one hand, you have Wagnerian opera, and we have the end of the world, and Götterdämmerung. On the other hand, you have very trivial things. The equivalent, we call it Circe, is the sorceress, Kirke, on an island who has the power to transform the men into animals, particularly swine. And this happens to half of this crew that's left over, and... He goes to their rescue. He is met by Hermes, who gives him a potent charm called Molu, and this enables him to withstand her charms. He draws his sword. She wants to unman him, but then he asserts himself, and they become lovers. So it's again woman as a great danger, but also as a seductress and uh, of great attraction. Very much the night, of course. And so this is taken over. The chapter is full of animal imagery mm. and all of that. The, the mm. correspondents are quite close. Yeah. So, And it's an old trick, by the way. It's nothing that Joyce invented. Mm. Uh, even, I think, Horace, I once found, said the equivalent would be a brothel, yeah. where men are subjected to what we, by the way, without any justice, call animal instincts. The, the swine mm. aren't particularly known for elaborate erotic practices and things like that. <laughs> but uh, it's always been that kind of uh, human nature mm. is higher mm. than mm. animals, mm. and so it is full of of animal imagery and all of that. So it is quite a close parallel to use that awful word. Uh, I want to say something. uh, You have car, private car. Car, Mm. the name is also borrowed from that lawsuit in Zurich. Uh, Somebody, Joyce, had a fight and had a lawsuit with, so Joyce could put people he didn't like into, (laughs) just as Dante did in his hell. Private car with ferocious articulation. So help me fucking Christ! I'll ring the bastard fuckers bleeding blasted fucking windpipe! The two British soldiers, they are the first ones to use the four-letter word as a participle that many people expect the book is full of, and it isn't. And it was at that time still a strong word. Well, I think the absence of vulgar language in this thing is something that people might note. The ordinary characters in the book Mm -hmm. do not use bad language. Mm -hmm. And my contention is that that is a reflection of the reality of the time in Dublin, that Mm -hmm. ordinary people did not use vulgar language. No, I just uh, mentioned it because there may be a opinion of people who haven't read, oh, this is vulgar, mm. this is obscene, and yet any mm. modern novel has this word mm. much more yes. than here. And it, it still had a kind of force. It's used in the last chapter, it, but it's only it thought. Can, yeah, and then yeah. it's very strong. strong. It mm-hmm. is very strong. Yeah. What it was originally intended yeah, yeah. for, a shock value. I let him know that's what he wanted, that his wife is fucked. Yes, and damn well fucked too, up to my neck nearly. Not by him. Five or six times hand-running. There's the mark of his spunk on the clean sheet. I wouldn't bother to even iron it out. That ought to satisfy him. At the end, it's interesting at the end, certainly, after all the noise and bustle, Bloom and Stephen are finally alone. Mm -hmm. For the first time in the book, Stephen is unconscious to be knocked down. And Bloom tries to help him, to rescue him. And he says, Mr. Devilus. No answer. Then he goes more intimate. Stephen. There is no answer. He calls again. Stephen. Stephen groans. Who 
Black Panther Vampire. He sighs and stretches himself, then murmurs thickly with prolonged vowels. Who drive Fergus now and pierce wood's woven shade? He turns on his left side, sighing, doubling himself together. Poetry. Well educated. Pity. He bends again and undoes the buttons of Stephen's waistcoat. To breathe. He brushes the wood shavings from Stephen's clothes with light hands and fingers. One pound seven. Not hurt anyhow. He listens. What? Stephen murmurs. Shadows. The woods. White breast. Dim. He stretches out his arms, sighs again and curls his body. Bloom, holding his hat and ash plant, stands erect. A dog barks in the distance. Bloom tightens and loosens his grip on the ash plant. He looks down on Stephen's face and form. Bloom communes with the night. Face reminds me of his poor mother. In the shady wood, the deep white breast. Ferguson, I think I caught a girl, some girl. Best thing could happen him. And Stephen slowly wakes up, and what is on his mind is the song of the first chapter, Who Goes with Fergus, and he mentions Fergus, dim breast, right, see a little bit, and Bloom, (laughs) probably thinking, when a young man wakes up from sleep or a knockdown, the first thing that springs to his lips is the name of his girl, he thinks, Miss Ferguson, best thing could happen to him. So the book also ends in a kind of misunderstanding, where... A fiction is taken mm-hmm. to be a real, but Bloom certainly takes care of him. And then we have, as you already said, the appearance in Bloom's mind mm-hmm. of Rudy, as he would be, dressed in a very strange way, not taking notice of Bloom. And that's the end of it. Now, either this is a great, as you call it, I, I tend to avoid the word epiphany. I mean, you're not alone, by the way. You're in very good company, so don't misunderstand me. Uh, Something, some manifestation of a great insight. Either here you have uh, the appearance of Bloom's real but dead son over his metaphorical son or something like that. So is that. Or, and I could also see it as a kind of image of Kitsch. Joyce and Kitch. <laughs> oh, no, 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 uh, no, no, I make a point. Joyce was, I think, one of the first authors to realize the importance of Kitch in our own lives. Joyce could be very sentimental. He was a sentimental. So, uh, all I'm saying is the whole span from something very profound and moving all the way to, oh, maybe it's a a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing. A sentimentalist is one who would enjoy without incurring the immense Mm -hmm. debt of Mm -hmm. the thing done. That's the text of the poem. I'm interested in the distance between the very elevated, Mm. which which is mustered here to a great degree, and something very trivial, blown up. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh, Something that 
I didn't emphasize greatly, and I think you didn't, is obviously a kind of father-son no, theme no, that goes through. Bloom is a real father who's lost a son. Stephen is a son who has a father but doesn't think much of him. And in Stephen's mind, there's a lot about the theological context. Mm. The son concept stands yes. with his father, that's on his mind. And, and all of these heretics. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And many, especially in the early days, especially from America, have thought that the father-son relationship is one of the central themes, as it well may be. I'm not particularly interested. I don't see, by the way, that Stephen is looking for a father. Nor do I. Uh, no. So... But let's leave this open. This is a matter of uh, in interpretation. And this obviously this fade-out picture, which is very silent, and mm. we can almost hear the silence, is the last impression, and, and there we are. And the little lambkin is peeping out of his mm. pocket. That's the last <laughs> thing we have. And he reads from right to left, mm. as if you were writing Hebrew. So, what, well, of course, uh, as you say, it's very theatrical. There have been the policeman yeah. there and the corny yeah. Kelleher and the crowd obviously yeah. looking at the row, and mm -hmm. suddenly they've all yeah. vanished, gone into the mm -hmm. wings, mm -hmm. and the, yeah. the tableau yeah. is left yeah. for the curtain to mm -hmm. come across. Bloom, wonderstruck, calls inaudibly. Rudy! Rudy gazes unseeing into Bloom's eyes and goes on reading, kissing, smiling. He has a delicate mauve face. On his suit, he has diamond and ruby buttons. In his free left hand, he holds a slim ivory cane with a violet bow knot. A white lambkin peeps out of his waistcoat pocket. <laughs> 